Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we are once again speaking with the wonderful Tone Wheeler, founder and owner of Environa Studio, head of the Australian Architecture Association and a man who I recently described as being a built industry titan. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design once again, Tone Wheeler. Thanks, Branko. Not sure about the built industry titan bit makes me bit of a man or a bit of an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we have a lot to cover today. So, why don't, why don't we start with women in sustainability? Who are they? What do they do and why do they matter? What's really interesting is that the 1960s was an era of reaction against the post-war modernism. So, after the Second World War, you had a rise of modernist town planning, modernist building modernist agriculture was a whole series of things that moved into what was really the model the modern industrial era and it didn't take long say 10 years of the 1950s before people could see that things were going wrong and by people i mean mostly women what's really interesting is that that period the 1950s of course as epitomised in things like, say, the Mad Men show on TV, it's a male-dominated world. And so it is in architecture, so it is in urban design. But I like to think that there are four or five women in the, in the 1960s who reacted against that and established what you might call environmentalism, you know, the, the response to the degradation of the environment which inevitably leads on to what we now regard as sustainability. The first of those is Jane Jacobs. Now, she's a... From New York, isn't she? From New York, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was a mother living in New York, and she could see that New York was going to be under siege from a whole series of freeways. And the, the pattern of... New York in those years, in the 1960s, was what the epitome of, say, Greenwich Village and the East Village and so on. And it was a pattern of life that had been that way on Manhattan for so long that when it was suddenly challenged and they were going to put a perimeter of freeways right the way around it and cutting through it, it was seen to be potentially destroying the whole of New York. But the the reaction to it was mostly led by local activist groups. So these are sort of resident action committees. And Jane Jacobs is forms one of those committees for her area, her village within Manhattan. And in fighting it, they were she was drawing together a whole series of threads about the quality of life, the quality of the air the quality of the resultant transportation. And because she had a, a journalist and scientific mind, she was able to condense these things into understandable bits of information that you could see that far from improving it, far from it being the sort of golden solution to it, it was actually going to make life a lot worse. And she measured it by what you might call the urban quality of life. Not just the normal factors in terms of 
of health and happiness, welfare and, and, and uh, income and so on. But it was like what the, the life of the city was, that it sustained its people by having just a life in its own regard so that you know the streets were the arteries and so on and the, there were various parts of the city which people would gather and they became a kind of organic not to say organs, but they were parts of the the lifeblood of the city, particularly in New York where people didn't need a car, not then, not now. Um, and why would you want to bring the cars in and then circulate them all the way around and destroy the street life? So You sure she didn't work for the New South Wales government? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we should wish that she was opposing it. And what? Well, we can update this in in a little while to what happened when the Department of Main Roads or the DMR, as it was, in the late '60s, early '70s, comes to the same conclusion and tries to drive freeways through Sydney, in particular. And there was a huge reaction against that, that then leads to green bans. But back to Jane Jacobs, she writes a couple of books on this, which become seminal texts for urban design and particularly the urban geography of cities and the economy of cities. The first is called The Death and Life of Great American Cities and expands beyond her neighbourhood in New York, beyond Manhattan, to the whole of the pattern of development of the great American cities, you know, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, San Francisco, and she looks at how those cities, all different, but they all have a life in them that is an organic growth out of particularly the 18th and 19th centuries, so that in the 20th century you're the inheritor of an urban fabric, closely densed living conditions in the uh, inner city, the idea of uh, being able to get anything that you need within walking distance of where you live, that there was a complex relationship between people living on the street so that you were safe because people knew you and would recognize you so that if you weren't there, they'd come looking for you, you know, if you're older and so on, or if you weren't recognized, then you would, you know, people would see you, eyes on the street as it became known. And they are streets. Because there's another book that runs parallel to this by um, Bernard Radofsky called Streets for People, in which he makes the very clear distinction that Jane Jacobs had done, that streets are for people, roads are for cars. The two words in English have a very different meaning. And that book really changes, that the, the book of Death and Life in Great American Cities, changes the way in which people are seeing cities from being almost a, a singular economic base to something that has a much more complex, what we would now call the triple bottom line, that it has a social fabric and it has an environmental fabric. The, the second book that she wrote after that is actually called The Economy of Cities. She started to look at the way in which the economic exchanges within a city can help define the complexities of it and the richness that it has. Richness in this particular case, meaning two different parts of the word. Richness as in rich in economy, in money, in straight out money terms. But richness in terms of quality, 
the the richness which we now think of as diversity or we think of as as the qualitative rather than the quantitative thing it's not just the quantity of money you've got but what's the quality of what you've done with it so that's 1961 that book comes out mm. and here it is 60 years later and I, and I think it's still one of the best books that you can read about what's happening in urban life one year later comes a book that looks at the the rural life as it is feeding into the cities the word feeding being a very bad pun and this is this is a book called silent spring which lots of people have heard of but perhaps not so many have read by rachel carson now rachel carson is a scientist and she starts to look at the disappearance of birds in the agrarian belts of the United States. So it's what we would now identify as species loss. Why is it that birdsong that was heard prior to the Second World War was very common and reported by people who were saying, well, I don't hear the birds that I used to hear when I was a child. She delves into it and, and she has one culprit in the frame, you know, Jacques DDT. So it's this one particular pesticide that's being used to control the crops. Um, and this leads to the idea that there's a silence in the surroundings, that there is a, a loss of biodiversity. And it challenges the whole notion of you know, big agribusiness, the notion that you had on a local family farm, say, in the early 20th century, it might have a diversity of crops, it might have both cropping and animals, it might have a richness in that sense of inputs to one that is actually a monoculture of farming. And again, you can fast forward some of that into work that's been done on how you can make a very sustainable organic farm and this is particularly in the work of Michael Pollan, which many people may have, have seen, on how to make a very small patch of ground support far more food production than you would get out of giant agribusiness. But the agribusiness was the, the target in her book. Still to this day, it's one of the best pieces of writing about scientific subjects. This is very difficult. The proof that there is a lineage between the DDT and the loss of biodiversity is we think of it intuitively that that's something that you know, we understand or we, we see that and of course it, it continues on today where some, or some pesticides are accused of causing cancer and there's been massive settlements in the United States in particular for the use of... Uh, Round, Roundup. Yeah, yeah, that's the commonly termed name for it, yeah. Well, glyphosate. Essentially, they're the glyphosate. Mm. Um, and they, they are under the pump. In the <laughs> that's another bad pun, isn't mm. it? But be because of the side effects that they have. In that particular case, it's to do with uh, the people who are using it and come in contact with it so that if you're spraying it or you're you know, um, using it, decanting it and so on and using it widely, it will affect that operator. What um, 
that's a slightly different aspect to it than what Rachel Carson was looking at, which is the, the use of uh, pesticides as it affects the wider biodiversity. So that's, that's a very interesting comparison between the regional, rural areas and the urban areas. So here are these two women who are challenging the orthodoxy that comes out after the, after the Second World War, the massive growth that's happening in what later became the OECD countries. You know, it's essentially what's happening in the regrowth of Europe in the UK, the United States and Canada and Australia. There was a background to what both of them brought to that study, which I think is really interesting when you look at an, an English economist who started to look at the sums not of the city or the countryside, but the whole of a country or indeed the whole of an ecosystem, the beginnings of the idea that everything is connected to everything else. And it was a woman called Barbara Ward, not, well, not nearly as well known as Rachel Carson and Jane Jacobs, but perhaps that's because she's English rather than American in the publications and perhaps because she's um, she's from the wealthy upper class um, but she's a, trained as an economist and she starts to look at the the issue of what ecosystems can be analyzed in terms of economic systems she comes to the very interesting conclusion in a book that she she writes and publishes in 1964 called only um, called Spaceship Earth. And uh, there's, a, there's a later book that she wrote which became much more commonly known um, in the early 70s called Only One Earth, which drew together all of this early work. But this idea of Spaceship Earth, that it's a closed system in the Earth, is, is down to her. What's interesting for those of you who listening to this with some architectural background might think oh hang on isn't that Buckminster Fuller he was the guy that was talking about spaceship earth actually Bucky as he's quite commonly known didn't use the term until 1966 there's no way of directly proving it but in in my library of things as you go back through things the earliest f use of it I can find is with Barbara Ward not with Bucky but Buckminster Fuller became way more famous because of his writings and his endless talks. And anyone who ever went to a Buckminster Fuller talk, as I did when I was younger, knows they were endless. He could talk for three, four, five hours. Fear not, listener, this podcast not going to go that long. So Barbara Ward is bringing this notion that it goes from the particular, the New York or the New England countryside, to the whole planet as being an issue. And that really hits the zeitgeist of the late 70s because it influences such things as um, the Whole Earth Catalogue. This is a book that's published out of Menlo Park, San Francisco, by Stuart Brand and Lloyd Kahn and others on tools. It's, it's called Access for Tools. And it's basically the internet before the internet. But what's interesting is they use a picture of the Earth shot from space, the first time that NASA releases an image shot from space of the whole of Earth 
is on the front cover of the second edition. And the whole Earth catalogue is the catalogue. It has that double meaning. It is for the whole of the Earth, but it's also about the fact that we need to preserve this one spaceship Earth, which they refer to. Interesting that that notion, again, had come from an economist, not from an environmental background and so on. This then leads to a whole series of um, books being published, particularly by the UN, studies being done. Mm-hmm. The United Nations is involved in this, as are a number of institutes form. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute's one of the best known in the United States. Um, a number of smaller organisations start to investigate the notion of autonomous housing or utopian areas to to live and out of that they decide to publish the United Nations decides to publish uh, a singular volume that will gather together all of this work of the 1960s and controversially population was involved in that and there was an update to Malthus's prediction Malthus was a mathematician who predicted 150 years earlier that there would come a time when um, the earth would overpopulate and his prediction didn't come to fruition because he didn't allow for the fact that there would be improvements in health, in sanitation, improvements in crop growing and so on. Isn't that one reason why the population keeps growing? It's mostly down to that very fact that it, it grows. But, it, but sustainability for the population was ahead of the actual population numbers until the 1960s. And that, that's the point I'm making. I think there's a tipping point in the 1960s where you start to see that the quality of life that you could have is going to be constrained by the amount of resources that you're consuming. And it's okay for the first 20, 30 years after that because there's suffered such a differential between what we call the first world and the third world. In case you're wondering, the second world is the communist world, but um, we mostly talk about the first world. The former communist world. Former communist Well, I suppose there's a small part of it, a small satellite. The first world is relatively small at that stage. Mm-hmm. But now that large parts of the third world, you know, South America, Africa in particular, mm-hmm. most of Asia, are now rapidly catching up or overtaking some of what was considered to be the first world, the pressure on resources has become even more demonstrable. In 1972, is a woman called Donatella Meadows, who's an ecologist. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, that sort of completes the circle, I think, of the, the four biggies that from the beginning of the, 70, the beginning of the 60s to the end of the 60s, early 70s. Donatello Meadows is putting it into some sort of context where the key is in the title of the book, The Limits to Growth. Can we have endless growth? No. We're on one singular planet. There's a limit to resources. There's an economic limit to that, being established by the economics view of it. There's a biological limit to it. And there's actually a social limit to it. Jane Jacobs' book is really talking about What's the quality of life in the city? Is it worth living in a city if you don't get the qualities that the urban fabric brings to you? you know, 
nearby resources, nearby services, interactions with a large number of people, the qualities that you have in the city. So if you start to lose one of the, each of those things because you, you get endless growth, then it just becomes a system sustaining itself or a system that becomes unsustainable. Now, each one of those particular stories from those, that 10-year period now plays out, I think, it repeats itself again and again, but you, it pays to go back to the originals, it pays to go back to the, those original four books that I think established the reasons why. Look, some of it, it's a bit arcane, some of it is, is, is past, but if you read it, then you realise that the vast amount of material that we're doing is refining the arguments that have been laid out in that 1960s explosion. I think it also is an explanation of what happened prior to the internet, but with the distribution of books on a massive scale, you got the dissemination of this information into the populace, into the sort of popular culture. Um, there, w there were people who weren't urban designers and weren't um, agriculturalists or weren't economists, but were reading these books because they actually touched on the, the quality of life. And um, the result of it came out in a number of different ways. Hippies, you know, very large number of people wanting to move to communes. The, the 1973 Aquarius Festival, which is all based on the idea of back to earth, back to nature. Um, the 1976 Down to Earth Festival and so on. They were all channeling the things that were in those books. My one last comment I'd make is a bit too much of it has been made from the ecological studies. Not quite enough is, is I think, attention is paid to Jane Jacobs, the very first book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Because a city is an ecosystem, and we can understand that, and we can understand a lot more about the inputs and outputs of cities. But we are rapidly heading towards the point where the world over 50% of people will live in cities and what will be the quality of life in those cities. It used to be that it was the, the, the rare urban flaneur, you know, the, the person who lived in Paris or in Budapest or London or New York and could walk the streets and take in the culture of hundreds of years around you and for which there was the the restaurants, the cafes, the the barber shops. There was the the uh, the, the variety of, of clothing shops and so on that made that urban life rich in in both senses. I think we need to go back to that that study of the cities. I think that's got lost the the joy of cities, if you like. So, my first book for your reading list um, that you should search out tomorrow. The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. I haven't been to New York, but as far as I know, it's not, it doesn't look like LA, does it? No, it doesn't. But there are the Manhattan in in a large part, particularly in the in the lower east and west sides, are cut off from huge freeways. Okay, and they then feed into the big bridges that lead across into. Bronx, Brooklyn, 
Queens and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, but the centre of New York, the bits that people really love, you know, are, are um, the Village and Soho and East Village and now, you know, the meatpacking district, now that they're no longer doing meatpacking in there. Mm. And the High Line was, that many people have heard of, this wonderful new landscaped mm-hmm. area of the High Line, was the railway line that ran down into the meatpacking district. So to an extent, yes, she won um, in the sense that they kept that part of, of New York. But New York is exceptional in that sense. M- many American cities, far more than Australian and New Zealand cities, have had this hollowing out of the centre. Detroit, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia to a certain extent the the center of the city is no longer got a large residential population people moved to the suburbs um it's interesting detroit i was l- re- listening recently to s- i can't remember what what it was it was, it was another, another podcast not mine but um so many of them there's so many of them there so are many. um not as good as this one of course but um i someone said that um that Detroit had a population of almost two million, and that's about six hundred thousand. So it's fallen, yeah, massively. But Detroit is interesting because there was a physical fabric of a city there that sustained two million people or could support two million people. But when you when it drops, there aren't the number of people there to take care of all the buildings and things falling to disrepair. But there are other opportunities arise. So where some buildings have gone, they've been demolished, people have actually established community gardens and they're growing the food so that you get this this movement of locavores, if you like. So one of the outgrowths, if you like, of Rachel Carson and Jane Jacobs' work is that perhaps we don't need big agribusiness, perhaps we're not growing fields of wheat and so on, perhaps what you're doing is growing vegetables or, or fruit and you're growing it locally and you can because you can tend it at a much higher rate, you don't need the, the pesticides and you don't need the, the, so much of the um, organi- inorganic or organic-based um, pesticides. And um, that leads to a different movement of... Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most interesting things, that there was a cafe that opened up in New York that said, we only use local food. Right. All food... And this was 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. It was the beginning of the movement. No food in this cafe comes from more than 100 miles away. Right. right? And people go, oh, gee, that doesn't get you over into the big wheat belts. It doesn't get you into the, the meat district, you know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the cattle areas of the United States. Those same cafes then started to have a fight between them as to how narrow they could make it. Yeah. I think the most narrow casting one is now down to 300 yards. Wow, okay. Yeah, because you can grow food on the roofs. One of the things that's happening in New York now is that abandoned warehouse buildings are being used to grow food, not least of which is, of course, the knowledge that comes from growing the, the herbs superb mm-hmm. um, under those conditions, under lights and so on and irrigation. and I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah. The um, the use of uh, waterborne I- um, irrigation and fertilizing for it. So um, hydro hydroponics, hydroponics, that's the one. Hydroponics, yeah, and aquaponics. If you're 
growing fish and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, that means that there is a possibility to um, reduce down transportation and, and reduce down the amount of refrigeration that you have. It's one of the things that when you had the spreading of the city, the, the post-Second World War, perhaps the post-1960 city, huge zoning areas. So you'd have an area zoned off for industrial. Mm -hmm. And part of what would be in there would be enormous warehouses, anonymous buildings, built anonymous designs and buildings for it, never really remarked, but they covered hectares of space, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 square metres of space and it's maintained at about, well, sometimes it's minus four degrees. Other times it's at four degrees. And they are essentially giant refrigerators, but we're talking massive mm -hmm. refrigerators in order to um, store the food that goes to all the supermarkets and so on. And it enables you to have you know, strawberries out of season or avocados out of season or any of the foods or fruits. And that has such an energy demand in it mm -hmm. that if you take Rachel Carson's beginnings in the fertilizers and the pesticides and you look at the oil inputs into that, and by which I mean the fossil fuel inputs, and then the transportation and the use of machinery on the farm and then the transportation and its storage in these cold stores and these vast cold store areas and then the delivery to supermarkets and then the refrigeration and everything else, yeah. Um, you're nodding your head going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, it, it adds up to as much yes. energy mm -hmm. is used in that, in food, as is used in the operations of all our buildings. I mean, that's, yeah. it's that big. Um, and that's why some people are starting to talk about the rise of vegetarianism and veganism and, and less meat and locavores and mm -hmm. local being a solution that attacks both of those issues, the, c the country and the city. No, I was just, uh, when I was nodding, I was um, reminded of our sea of um, warehouses on the M7, which I go past every now and then. And, and you, you look at that and I'm sure they're, I'm sure some of those are maintained at minus four for whatever reason. I mean, they're all DCs for some some um, FMCG chain or another. Um, There's an awful lot of uh, letters in there. I think you mean distribution centres? Di yeah, d sorry, distribution centres for like, you know, fast-moving consumer goods, like supermarkets, let's say. let's Fast-moving consumer goods. The, 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 I love the lingo, yeah. <laughs> so there's a... I used to work in a retail magazine. That's, that's <laughs> how I picked this up. But no, it, when you drive past, um, and there are times at night when you when you drive past, it's and it's quite obvious that like you're the only human driving past these places. I'm sure there might be one or two people inside. I don't know, along with all the robots. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think there is a lot of people in those. But there's a lot of energy that goes in. Well, I think one of the things that we can now do. Um, any person can do with uh, access to Google Earth is start to look at your city and start where you live and then zoom out from it and look mm. at the grain is what urban designers and architects call it the the texture or the grain of the city so if you lived in the inner urban areas you know if you're um, in Fitzroy or, or Newtown Newtown in Sydney or if you're um, in um, Spring Hill in Brisbane, mm -hmm. uh, 
North Perth, you, you're actually seeing um, density of and complexity of things that were basically there from the 19th century grown over. If you start with some of that and then you just zoom out and then use it like a lens to move out in, across the city, you'll come across this wasteland, as it will look like, from the air. Giant roofs. Mm-hmm. And you look at something and you go, because they're your DCs that mm-hmm. you're talking about, mm-hmm. the, this huge warehouse buildings. Yep. Now, they're in every city. But you, they tend to be areas where you, they are located, ideally, near freeways so that mm-hmm. you get the trucks in and out. Mm-hmm. And you see them from the freeways. But what you don't realise is the vastness of those areas. Okay. Um, and despite them carrying names like, say, Wetherill Park, the only thing that's a park in there is trucks being parked. Um, yeah. So that it's it's um, it, it's interesting how our cities have been zoned for these areas, and now you get dead zones in it. You know, it's literally dead food in a dead building. It's dead at most day and night, and it it just prolongs the distances that you have to travel to get around it. <laughs> What do what okay? What can women provide in terms of a view on sustainability that men can't or won't? Perhaps is, is that is that something that oh, am I going in a path or that I should be no, going down? You're inviting me to <laughs> to speculate in areas that are you know, I've long been interested in, but don't have proof and expertise in necessarily. But I find that hard to believe. <laughs> Let me let me start with this observation. Um, when I was teaching very young architecture students, first and second year students, and you were asking them to design a building without terribly much guidance, you just said to them, "Do a do a head dump." And we used to do this very early on in first year. We just we had a, a program called Opus Musivum, which literally means piecing the city or right. piecework. So every student would have to design a building, right? And it was, it, it was, and then you put all the different pieces together and made a city and people looked at it and went, well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> that's not how to make a good city. We need, we need some, some way in which we can interpret um, individual freedom. So if you just let somebody design it, a huge number of the students would fall into one of two categories. The building would be designed from the outside often symmetrical, often based on the idea of, of your face, you know, as a symmetrical object which is carried over into classical architecture, the columns across the front, the tympanum, the triangular piece on top, the, the pediments and so on. Men. Always it was the men. Okay. And they made it big like a temple. Didn't matter what it was, <laughs> it was big like a temple and it was symmetrical. And quite often it had no sides and back to it. I remember w- w- one of my early students who didn't go on to um, study architecture. In fact, become one of became one of Australia's greatest portrait painters. Um, Who's that? Uh, it was Ralph Hyman's is okay. his name, and he's done lots of work in the portrait gallery in Canberra. Um, and, and, a, and a shout out to you, Ralph. We haven't spoken for thirty years, but admire your work. But he, the first building that he bought in was a, was a temple front, and was all that was important. He was classically trained um, in in painting as as in this design and I think 
it was striking to what extent the outside of the building had no internal content. And then you'd, th then you'd find a, a, bu a building that would be just a, a bunch of bits from the outside and invariably be women trying to solve the problem of how you'd negotiate and get around the building. Now, that's not, that's not absolutely the case, but it's echoed in lots of ways through modernist theory. Mm -hmm. um, the well-known Lever House uh, in New York, to go back to New York, mm -hmm. designed by Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, said to be designed by Gordon Bunshaft, the main architect, the very well-known architect from SOM. Um, the interiors of that building, which are really striking, quite interesting, if you go there, is a woman called Natalie de Bois. <coughs> is that the case that women do the interiors and men do the exteriors? Is it, is it chicken and egg? Because if you go to an interior design school now, yep. Predominantly, it's women. Yeah. If you if you go to the the product days that are oriented towards um, ma you know materials and interiors, vast numbers of the readers for that will be women. Uh -huh. um, and the people striding on the podium who are talking about the big ideas. Shout out to you, Biaki Ingalls. They're mostly men with the big the you know. You've got to have a certain ego to be mm -hmm. able to call your your firm big. Now that's not that, that's not a, there's not a perfect piece of research in any of that. That's just simply observations from somebody who taught that for twenty years, and infallibly was not infallibly, but it was almost inevitably the case. It, but and there were always exceptions to that. But it's more than anecdotal, though. Twenty years uh, is a long time. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty big bloody sample. Yeah, and you you, and I think it's carried through in terms of what people have done with their, their careers. Now, I think the same thing happened in in the triple bottom line. The, the triple bottom line, by the way, I should explain, is a, is a book by John Elkington. It's not called that. It's actually called Cannibals with Forks. Yep. Really interesting book from the, the late 1990s, 1996, I think it was. So what Elkington was saying was, this is a conundrum. If, if a cannibal eats with forks, does it make it any more... Uh, socially acceptable. Anyway, he, he, he posits this idea that, that the economy should be divided in three ways. One is to do with money, one is to do with the environment, and one is to do with um, society and people. So often it's called people, planet, and profit, mm -hmm. or the economy, um, equity, and the environment. What I think is interesting about that is that it's very hard to penetrate that stuff into the so social negotiations if you're a man skilled in the things about the money, right? The brief to do a building is, or the brief to do a, a city, or the brief to do a, an automobile or whatever it is, is about, is a fundamentally economic matter. If you're involved in child rearing, childbirth, yeah. And your your connection to the health system is, you know, is, if nothing else, is through childbirth. Rearing child children, looking after them, looking after their health, looking after their um, their psychological development and well-being, and so on. And that's predominantly women's work, for mm -hmm. better or for worse. It certainly, much of it is 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 stereotypical. Mm. Um, then you have a you have a view of society. You don't have a view of it as an economy. And I think that's one of the things that has been 
a talisman for how people view the city, do you view it as an economic element? Is it, is it an, a, a, an organism designed around exchange and so on that can be measured in the economy? Or is it also about the social life that's in it and it is also about the, the quality, of the spatial quality of it, which I would say is an environmental quality? My experience is that most of the reading, most of the reading that I do in that social and environmental space is from women. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be, look at, you know, whether it's high, well-known women like Naomi Klein, mm -hmm. uh, much debated at the moment you know, for her, her stumbles, but, but the body of the work is really incredibly impressive. To social commentary like Joan Didion, to the way in which the, the economy is being represented by um, male flavour, it's on our TV screens um, in, in many respects, um, the social parts of it, the inquiry that's being made about social issues. Big shout out to SBS. It's always women mm -hmm. doing those discussions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the broader, the broader view that comes from, say, very seasoned commentators like Geraldine Doog, right. who's trying to knit all that together. My argument on that is that um, it is it's because of the emotional engagement that you have to have with the, the city around you, and I think it's higher with women than it is with men. So when a city an urban area, let's say, is, is planned badly, When let, let's say when sustainability fails, if that's the right way to um, frame that, when something's unsustainable, when the design is not conducive to human interaction, is it... You mean Canberra? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say Adelaide. Anyway, um, but seriously though, is, is it the women that... that first feel the brunt of that yeah absolutely and the reason i mentioned canberra is that it's i think that's a very pertinent example within australia it's the most unsustainable city in the most unsustainable country yeah in the world and i say that as being a resident of canberra for 10 years on and off and i think one lens through which you can see that is the notion of it's a great place to raise kids well it is because the health system was very strong and there were health care centers and so on in Woden and Western Creek and Tuggeranong and so on mm. um, they have a light rail now you know. yeah well yeah, yeah, which has destroyed a huge number of trees um, which is one of the real beauties of Northbourne Avenue is that you entered a city in an inland plain with beautiful eucalypt trees and that was, and it, it at crossroads to that was Hague Park, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which which was a, which was a series of um, what's a huge plantings of I think fir trees, certainly northern European trees, right. cold climate trees, which was one of the, one of the few things that that Walter and Marion Griffin left as a mark. They they had actually planted it out. They'd actually designed and planted it, and it intersects with something that used to have beautiful white gums, Manifera maculosa, from memory, something of that sort. 
they've all gone. And what you what you now get is a town that looks like it's got a whole series of um, flat square buildings, and it just looks like um, it looks closer to something that came out of the Eastern European redevelopments of the cities after the Second World War, whereas it did have a flavour of actually being a you know the bush capital and being in the bush. They just simply took the bush away. <laughs> but I think, to get back to your question about the women, yeah, um, if you live in Canberra and you have young kids, yeah, they can get to school from most places by only crossing one or two streets. Okay. And you, you know, tunnels under the roads and so on. Um, but it, it lasts until you're a, a, about seven or eight, and then you're pretty much sick of running around on vast paddocks of scribbly grass and stuff. Um, and uh, you've got... Uh, huge um, problems with um, drugs and um, antisocial behaviour amongst teenagers in, in Canberra. The highest rates in some of those that you get in Australia in what is almost entirely an upper middle class, middle class suburb, mm -hmm. a middle class city, you know. Um, the working class, by the way, are over in Queanbeyan. Um, yeah. They've been excised, exiled over there where they can play rugby league. But I think that gives you a very strong idea as a as a, a woman without a motor car in 1960s and 70s Canberra that was pretty dire you know I was there at part of that when I went as a student to ANU and um, ANU had colleges very good colleges right on the campus mm -hmm. of this fabulous town and gown it was it was built into the the city it was it was a post second world war university by the way it's not it's not uh, it's not an ancient um, development to have ANU right beside Civic, and it had a quality that was in there. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, fond memories that halfway in between it was a little drill hall in which the first community radio station, oh, wow. uh, 2XX, um, wh whose call sign used to be 1010XX. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, but, but the new university, which was called the Canberra CAE, the, the, the College of Advanced Education, was outside any city centre. It was not walkable distance, even though it was located in Belconnen. There was no way in which you could walk comfortably from there into Belconnen Town Centre or to the, you know, the major buildings mm -hmm. that were there. And so there were car parks filled with cars. So all the students that I was teaching when I first went to the Canberra CAE, well, they for a start, they had better cars than I did, <laughs> better selections. But mm. um, th there was a massive car dependence yeah. in there. Um, and if it wasn't for very cheap cars becoming more and more available, most women would have been stranded um, in, the, in suburbia, in dreary, what n the great English uh, critic Nicholas Pevsner called the... Uh, Poverty of diversity, you know, it it, it, mm. it, it it looks like it's diverse. Every ha every house is a different colour, yeah. but they're essentially all the same house. If, if that's true for Canberra, uh, what's it like? Let's say in countries that aren't that uh, wealthy and aren't that, I guess. Uh, well off as as Australia. I mean, you know, if if badly designed, unsustainably designed um, city or urban area, let's say in, in in a you know second or third world country, I mean, it must then be 
ten times harder for for women, you know, rather than the incumbent. No, I, I don't think it is. I think I think what's really interesting in that sense is that if you go to places which are supposedly macho culture, right? It's a word that's used such as say Argentina, right? Okay. Right? Okay, the gaucho, the you know cowboys and so on. If you go to Buenos Aires, hmm. that's a very dense city. Right. How, how big are we talking about? Oh, I'm going to test my memory there, and I, I can't open up my um, fact checker mm. quickly enough. But it's um, it's a population bigger than Sydney's, I okay. think, from memory. But it's about that size of what it feels like. But it's the most beautiful collection of apartment buildings. And there was no fear on the streets of Buenos Aires um, in for most of it. In the middle, certainly in the middle class areas of it, um, it, it doesn't have um, the favela issues that, say, Rio de Janeiro has in Brazil. But there was, it was undoubtedly easier to come down out of your apartment, go and do some shopping, carry the shopping bags back, go past the inevitable concierge. Every apartment building through uh, Retiro. And, and other suburbs, those names I can't remember, in Buenos Aires, has a, a, a concierge or, a, or a, an open area at the bottom of the building mm-hmm. that makes you feel safe. Okay. Um, and it, it couldn't be anything more diametrically opposed to what you get in Canberra, which is dark streets, poorly lit, where you have to drive up in the car and you, you, know, you don't know what's lurking behind the Australian bush there. Right. I think one of the things that is interesting is that in Griffin's original plan, the Griffins, both of them, mm. for what is the the triangle, the the apex of it is the Parliament House, the hypotenuse, the long part of it that ran between Civic and what's now called Russell, mm. that was lined with three-storey to four-storey walk-up flats. It was meant to have something along the lines of the the beautiful leafy suburbs of Chicago right. where Marion and, and Walter had come from and they were, it was dense apartments and you would actually get on a tram that ran on that triangle that, that uh-huh. all the way around um, that never happened the apartments are now isolated in up North Bourne Avenue right yeah, well now at Russell you have AGO's new headquarters so that'll make, it, that'll make it a lot better actually it didn't fit in Russell it didn't fit. No, ASIO is this long, extended building that looks out over the lake and challenges. I mean, it's there was a beautiful idea that you could have a lovely triangle and you fill it up with the most important buildings in Australia. You know, the National Library, Bunning and Madden, um, the High Court and the National Gallery, which are Chris Kringis and and uh, Cole Madigan. There was Madigan, Tuzzle and Briggs, and then there were later buildings that that came in there, which you know, like the the Science Centre and so on. But there were treasury buildings and so on in that triangle. Um, they, they're sparse. You know, they, they're so far apart. When, um, when the Barton building was built, there was a, there was a uh, Edmund Barton offices designed by Harry Seidler. Mm-hmm. It's a series of buildings with silos in the corner, these round structures which were called silos because anybody who'd come in from the Wheat District could see them, mm. concrete silos. Beautiful building with an undercroft that you could walk underneath and it was completely open. But th- there was no cafe. There was no, they actually had to build 
a purpose-built cafeteria mm -hmm. behind it, um, which is one of the earliest buildings done by um, Denton Corker Marshall. Okay. And very postmodernist. You know, you search it out. Not, not, not like anything that DCM was to do later on. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you'd actually have to build a purpose-built canteen, <laughs> which there was in Woden when I when I first worked at in Furza Street in uh, um, oh, what was it? Serious House. It was called. Uh, that's S I R. Mm -hmm. There's nothing serious about it. Serious House. We went off to a canteen. There was there was no cafe. There wasn't you know a, a dozen different cafes that you could head off to, nor a, uh, a food truck that would come around or anything that you might have now. Of course, most of the places in the city now, in, the, in, in all the cities, you know, in Melbourne's laneways, in, in Brisbane's um, civic areas, in Sydney, in the lanes and so on, I it's all to do with, uh, with food yeah. and, and, and having lunch and having meetings. Um, in interestingly, one of the things that you can you can mark in the big IT estates. Right. Talk about zoning and the issue of safety in women is that a lot of the places that are um, designed for the megaplexes, mm. for you know the, the Googles and Amazons and so on of this world. They actually then provide an entire world inside the building. They bring their own cafes and they bring yep. their own. Um, and I visited a an enormous um, floor area. It's like four and a half thousand square meters of single right. floor area in New York recently. Had three cafes. They had uh, recreation areas. They had displays. They had their own museum inside the building right. <laughs> for the advertising agency um, because weirdly the street life in, in that particular area, which is called Hudson Yards, um, it d doesn't exist. You know, it was a, it was an imported, made area. It's the equivalent in Sydney's place like Macquarie Park. Right, know, okay. Uh, where there's vast buildings with huge numbers of people in them, but there's no street life in it. Mm -hmm. and, and after dark, you know, I just do, I don't, I don't feel safe. In terms of that, okay, so what Australian city would you, well, as an architect with, with many years' experience, a decade's experience, what Australian city would, would be the most, I guess, not just safe, but also the most, I guess, female-friendly, I guess, if that's the right way to term it, and also in terms of safety, of course. That's been sadly in the news in the past couple of years on the, on a regular on a regular basis, what city would you be in Spruiky? I'm going to go against the grain here from what's happened in recent history and say that it's the inner city parts of Melbourne. Okay. Despite the fact that there's been some horrific, yeah, um, Eurydice Dixon and and so on, there's been some horrendous mm. um, attacks and, and and murders. But those areas, uh, the density of people that are there, mm -hmm. and the the liveliness of the streets that you can walk down um, has meant that it's it's been um, relatively safe against the outer suburbs of it where you know, th there are regular accounts of attacks and so on and murders being happening out there but it doesn't it doesn't seem as much um, 
as much of an issue if you're in what I call the, the VFL areas, you know, <laughs> Collingwood, Fitzroy, yeah, Carlton yeah. and, and St Kilda and so on. Yeah. I think that's, and uh, there is an equivalent area in Sydney that Newtown and Glebe and mm -hmm. Surrey Hills always felt a little edgy and so on. Um, there's certainly been a, uh, a high degree of m modification, the... Uh, mm the gentrification of those um, places. But there's very high densities of people on the streets, um, which which makes it safe. Ironically, the lockout laws are actually making it less safe um, in the sense of um, there are less people on the street. Yes, there's less drunks, less hoodlums, there's mm -hmm. less idiots mm -hmm. in the street, but there's also just less... Um, eyes on the street to see what's going on. I, I live not far away from Oxford Street in Sydney um, and uh, it's teeming with the wild and the weird and the odd and, and, and the, the straight and gay and, the w and, and almost every uh, thing that you could possibly imagine. Never felt unsafe in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's partly because the the density of people that you get in those suburbs, and it's not a density that you get out of high rises, right? Okay. And, and where the ground plane of that, the, uh, sorry, architectural term, where where the the city streets at the bottom of it are actually quite deserted because there are cars going into garages and so on. Mm -hmm. um, okay. There's you know, what 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 makes it safe is having other people around. Because it's not, it's not just, it's not just an architecture, it's culture as well, is it not? The, the English culture of going to a local pub as your living room was an interesting thing in villages. Yeah. Where the houses were very small. Mm -hmm. not, not like in Australia where you have a very large uh, home-based entertainment. You know, you have friends over for a barbecue mm -hmm. and you can kids can play out the back and whatever else um, in in much smaller and remembering that on average British houses of that period um, of the 19th to early 20th century were one third the size of Australian houses even then and the disparity is growing even further okay. um, you you need some public place and so yes you might be drunk and you, you know, the publican knows who you are and mm -hmm says, look, you know, it's time to go home, Jimmy. Um, I think that that's a form of local village life that extended into London, the city of villages. And when I lived there, there was, a, you know, you had your local. Yeah. That you went to and um, it took some time to be accepted in there. Um, but once you were, um, then I think that became part of your house your extended house right. and that's certainly the case in in places like new york and and to a less extent in the, the bigger um, american cities toronto san francisco philadelphia boston and so on um, whereas washington in the united states uh, it, it has it has an overlay of a racial issue in, in mm. the huge amount of black poverty that there is in the in the nation's capital and, and a swamp, from, from what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, they're, they're trying to they're trying to drain that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the issue there is that if you if you start out with a, a giant plan and you put lots of space in it and never have figure out how to fi- fill it up, mm-hmm. filling it up. I think Walter and Marion Griffin had a plan to fill it up much more than than has been done and has been done now. Mm-hmm. The disaster was to invite Lord Holford over in the 1950s. Okay. And uh, he was the head of the Newtown movement in England and, and Scotland, right. places like Cumbernauld or Milton Keynes, and these were towns that were meant to take the pressure off, you know, the Birminghams and the mm-hmm. Nottingham and Manchester and London. Um, and uh, they were, they pulled everything apart. You know, it was like, you know, you'd, you know, you had this this beautiful, rich meal, right, of with different flavors, and then you just pull it all apart and put yeah. them in different areas, yeah. with a huge gap in between it. You know, you'll have your peas now, and then you can have your potatoes in two hours' time, and you'll, you know, you'll get to the meat in three weeks' time. You, that that idea of dislocating things is is what Canberra's about. It's it's so low density and it's so pulled apart that even back in the 1970s, you had to have a car and drive for almost an hour to get from the new suburbs of, say, Waniassa in Tuggeranong mm. just to go to Canberra University, l- let alone go to the furthest suburb like Charnwood mm-hmm. on the far end of it. Nightmare for a city which w- at that stage was only a quarter of a million people, um, and you could compare it to the way in which Wollongong and Newcastle were real cities. Mm-hmm. Um, real traditional inner cities, um, and boy, a shout out to Newcastle is it has perhaps that's one of the things that um, I overlooked in when you asked me what the great inner parts of city cities are. Mm-hmm. There are parts of Newcastle that are that you know got the three-way thing that you always want. They're right close to the beach yep. for the Aussie lifestyle. They're right close to all the services that you might like. Mm. And there's some pretty cracking good houses and buildings in it. Absolutely fascinating. From women to to poverty to design to um, New York to, of all places, Canberra and back. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Miletic. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>